Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for the week of May 28th, even though it was Memorial Day, I guess the 29th. There was news on Memorial Day. Hi, my name is Rich Straffolino, and I am your host here, running down the IT news of the week. I am joined in the hellish landscape of Oklahoma by my good friend, colleague, and indeed, gentleman of leisure, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rich. I would like to uh, give a quote by my uh, good friend, Red A. Dare. If I owned a place in hell and a place in Oklahoma, I'd run out of a place in Oklahoma. Tom, your audio is all of a sudden coming through very grainy and like a robot. Um, is your mic, can, can you try and reconnect your mic for a second there? And now you have just disappeared or you're frozen. So this is good. Uh, so Tom will be back in just a second. I'm going to take down my name uh, from the little Chirons here, and we're going to get started. We've got a lot of news, uh, some of it uh, dealing with some policy stuff, uh, some vaguely political stories, um, but we're going to try and focus on the, the tech angle for IT practitioners. I think we're going to jump in here and get started talking about uh, potential U.S. ZTE settlements. Uh, the New York Times and Reuters are now reporting uh, that the Trump administration told Congress it reached an agreement with ZTE, which currently has a seven-year ban against U.S. companies supplying parts to the company. ZTE will uh, reportedly uh, pay a penalty. Uh, I've seen $1.3 billion floated around, uh, shuffle its management, and hire American compliance officers. Uh, one of the things against them is supposedly they were supplying components uh, to regimes that the U.S. had trade embargoes against, uh, such as uh, Iran, I believe. Uh, in return, the U.S. would drop the current ban, which is effectively not allowing ZTE to do business. Uh, President Trump has called the ZTE negotiations part of broader talks to address alleged Chinese trade abuses. Now, Tom, thanks for uh, rejoining us, by the way. Appreciate that. Um, the One of the interesting things about this is this kind of brought up that I did not realize how big of a mar uh, place in the U.S. market ZTE had. This current ban is basically means they can't do any business in the U.S. or makes it very hard uh, to to do any business in, with any kind of profitability. But I believe they're the number three handset uh, uh, shipper in the United States and have kind of reaches all across uh, telecoms. Uh, do these kind of uh, uh, sanctions alleviate any concerns or for consumers is, you know, is is this just a political argument? This isn't necessarily something they really care about one way or the other. This is mostly a political argument. Most people don't care in the long run, as long as they can go buy a cheap Android handset, because that's really what ZTE made. Um, now, the biggest question that I haven't heard addressed with this yet. Yeah, we're going to let ZTE have some some uh, capability to manufacture in the U.S. again or to sell into the U.S. Um, but there was a huge national security concern just before the uh, embargo was announced. Um, several sitting U.S. senators and congressmen think that there is a national security risk of having ZTE devices that phone home that could be, you know, sending secret information back to China. So I think whatever happens, that's going to have to be addressed as well. And maybe ZTE has to kind of open things up a little bit and let regulators in there and see what's going on. I know that's been one of the arguments that, uh, for against Huawei for years is that um, there's a possibility of some back doors that people aren't aware of. It's very interesting that they don't seem that that concern hasn't been raised as much as I've heard rather than it's these, uh, you know, it, it's how they're behaving as a company versus security concerns. Now, maybe that's because they don't have quite the presence. They're not trying to get into the data center so much as Huawei, which is, I think, mm -hmm. why, you know, we don't want Huawei access points. We don't want, you know, Huawei servers necessarily. And if they're going to be phoning home, handsets are a slightly different concern. But yeah, uh, I think for consumers, a lot of this is for your your unbranded carrier branded 
$50 no contract cell phone. Uh, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, definitely broader security concerns as well. So I'll be interested to see uh, if that works out. Um, Tom, kind of going back to some of our more greatest hits, Qualcomm, they're trying to buy things. And uh, it looks like they may actually be successful. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Chinese State Administration for Market Regulation, they have a way with names, is set to approve Qualcomm's $44 billion acquisition of NXP Semiconductor. The approval is expected to include conditions to favor domestic Chinese businesses, surprise, surprise, particularly around mobile payment technology. Qualcomm previously received approval on the deal from eight other global antitrust regulators. China has requested that uh, Qualcomm kind of reset their bid on this a couple of times, but it looks like now they've uh, they've lined up all their ducks. They've done what they've needed to do to assure China that they're not going to edge out uh, local business. I mean, the big concern uh, that I've been seeing across is that NXP would give them a considerable portfolio in kind of uh, mobile payment, mobile transaction uh, technology. And China wants to make sure that their local businesses aren't going to be affected by that. Um, so Qualcomm gets to buy something. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> well, Qualcomm, Qualcomm had to get bigger to start fending off because they've proven they're vulnerable after the Broadcom attempted acquisition, which, let's face it, didn't fail for monetary reasons. It failed for political ones. Um, this this is basically to fend off the next suitor, if you will. May, and Qualcomm's got to go on a buying spree. They've got to start integrating and streamlining that technology and making everything work because if they don't, they're going to find themselves broken apart and sold off piece by piece by some you know, hot shot activist investor like Carl Icahn or Elliott Capital Management. Yeah, and loaded up with debt and then dead in five years. Um, the One of the interesting things, and this will relate to a story we're going to be talking about later, is I wonder... Uh, if Qualcomm, you know, there's there's a lot of companies, uh, there's a lot of talk that FPGAs are about to kind of enter into their own and the whole AI ML landscape. I'm wondering if maybe one of the big uh, FPGA makers might be a target uh, for Qualcomm acquisition as well along those lines. Again, they just have to get bigger, sell more things, make the money. Yeah, exactly. The, the FPGA market is going to be huge before you know it. Yeah. All right. So in uh, security news, uh, Cisco's Talos security team reported that a Russian malware attack known as VPN filter had infected over 500,000 consumer grade routers and NAS devices. Yes, they're coming for your network attached storage. The Daily Beast reports that the FBI has seized a domain associated with the malware and uh, would be used to deliver future stages of it. So basically it comes in three stages. The first stage is basically the platform to deliver further exploits. Um, and this uh, URL would have been called to uh, for some of the, the second stages and third stages, which would allow them to monitor communication, shut down your device, that kind of stuff. Um, the, uh, the FBI basically uh, is recommending that anyone with a consumer grade router reset their router. I think Linksys uh, and um, oh, uh, uh, Tom, what are the other big what's the other big router manufa manufacturer? I can't think of it off the top of my head. Uh, Linksys, Microtic. Uh, Microtic had a couple, QNAP had a couple of devices. They're all based on the same reference architecture, which is why they were able to get um, in, infested as easily as they were. Yeah. Yeah. And basically they're, they're, what they're saying is, so a reset will, uh, it, the stage two and three uh, versions of this exploit don't survive uh, a reboot. So you're good there. And the first stage is kind of useless unless they can get to those other two stages. And then a hard reset will wipe it entirely. Um, and the FBI is now working with ISPs to disseminate infected IP addresses, let people know if uh, they're broadcasting and, and kind of being a bad actor, letting them know, hey, do that hard reset and reset uh, your SSID. Um, seems like a pretty uh, sophisticated exploit. Uh, like you said, a wide range of, uh, you know, and, and also like a long-term game um, here. 
I, I think the biggest story, though, is kind of a win for uh, Cisco's uh, Talos security. I've seen a number of uh, news stories coming out lately that they've, they've you know, uh, really being, I, you know, you could argue that maybe that's not, I mean, certainly it's Cisco's interest to secure their own stuff, but I didn't see any uh, Cisco name on any of that hardware and, uh, you know, build some goodwill for Cisco and builds a safer internet, I guess, for them to operate on. Yeah, Talos has been knocking it out of the park with all of the detections that they've had recently. As a matter of fact, if you really want to see the the nuts and bolts behind this thing, go read the Talos blog article that they put up. Yeah, you're right. Cisco had no infected devices. There were only two low-end Linksys routers that were affected by this, and those were both produced after Cisco sold Linksys off to the Belkin group. Um, this thing was nasty. Uh, as Rich mentioned, you know, it had some command and control URLs. Um, it had three stages of backup to try to be uh, try to infect other devices if those uh, URLs went offline. It used EXIF data from online uh, pictures to uh, determine ways to spread. Um, it was the movie poster for What Women Want with Mel Gibson. So go figure, <laughs> right? It, yeah, and um, I... I I, I do enjoy, yeah, when you when you see this level of sophistication that, uh, yeah, this isn't, um, you know, a bunch of hackers putting this together and thinking like, hey, this would be fun if we uh, distribute this out there. Clearly, either uh, a large organization or state sponsored. And uh, I think it was later come out that confirmed that uh, this was associated uh, from Russian sources. So uh, interesting, yeah. interesting article there. Um, hey, Tom, are you a fan of obvious things? Oh, Yeah. Well, a new report from Platformonomics, uh, say that three times fast, looks at CapEx spending from IBM and Oracle. And hey, guess what? They're in trouble. Uh, from an IBM perspective, CapEx is actually down uh, for cloud spending over the course of the last several years, both in terms of absolute dollars spent as well as a percentage of revenue. Now, it's still around like $4 billion. So it's not an inconsiderable amount of money, but considering, you know, uh, Amazon uh uh, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google are in, you know, double digits there. It's definitely a, a lower number. And the fact that it's decreasing, certainly not a great sign. Uh, we're talking about Oracle. They've uh, actually doubled their CapEx since 2014 as kind of part of their broader cloud strategy and have increased the percentage of revenue going uh, into cloud CapEx. So, you know, make, definitely making some steps. But in terms of absolute uh, dollars, they're less than anybody. I think they're just under $2 billion in terms of total cloud CapEx. Um, it's estimated that they've spent a cumulative total, uh, and they've been counting since 2001, of about $3.5 billion on cloud CapEx, which is about what one of the big three spend per quarter. So think about that. Uh, growth of their uh, cloud business also trails Google, Amazon, and Microsoft when you're looking at uh, quarterly uh, revenue growth. Um, they're still, I mean, they're growing at a healthy rate, you know, 25, 30%, um, but Amazon's growing at like 40%. Um, the, the big issue here is the reason Oracle's kind of figured out, hey, cloud is important, is it's going to eventually eat their eat into their business. IBM's kind of in the same boat. They've been turning the battleship in some direction that no one seems quite sure about yet. Um, but, you know, kind of what's the next step for these two companies in terms of their cloud play? I mean, clearly they can't keep up on the CapEx numbers. Is it just to, in Oracle's case, keeps, you know, increasing the percentage of revenue that goes toward it and and find your niche and, and build your business off of that? Is that the only way to succeed, Tom? Pretty much. I'm I'm pretty sure we're going to find out that the cloud spending number is actually Larry Ellison's secret volcano layer in the Pacific <laughs> Uh, no, I, IBM has proven that that they're probably making the smart move by reducing CapEx spending until they can get more cloud revenue, cloud customers. Um, I think they are fighting a very losing battle here. They're they're eventually going to have to partner up, sell their assets off to somebody else, you know, maybe maybe a Google and then just, you know, do what IBM did 10 years ago. Give up. 
and and start fresh again. Because uh, let's face it, that's what IBM is good at now is realizing that they probably should up. cut their losses <laughs> and move on. Well, hey, I used to run a blue lightning chip with OS2 warp. Let's face it, IBM of old did not know when to quit while they were ahead. Now, Oracle, on the other hand, they're doubling down when they should probably stop. And you are the fifth horse in a three-horse race at this point. Don't. But they have to they have to show that they are selling cloud and they have to show that they are becoming a leader in cloud. And when you can't even beat an organization's cloud hobby kit, I don't care how much money you're going to throw at it. And let's, let's be fair. You, you're probably throwing a lot of money for Oracle at it but you're not throwing enough money at it to topple a large cloud provider. If you wanna really get serious, you need to stop adding cloud capacity whenever you sell cloud. You need to add cloud capacity to sell cloud. All right, well, any of those public cloud providers might be interested in this next story. Uh, originally developed to standardize high-end graphics uh, for servers, NVIDIA just unveiled an update to their HGX cloud server infrastructure, creatively titled, get ready for it, HGX2. This will uh, provide supercomputers and hyperscale cloud players, 16 NVIDIA V100 GPUs connected over uh, the NVLink fabric into one logical pool capable of hitting two petaflops uh, or training an AI on 15,500 images per second, at least according to some benchmark, which I'm sure is in some sort of optimized scenario. Uh, NVIDIA's NGX2 will be the, uh, I'm sorry, DGX2 will be the first system to use the updated uh, architecture and is available for a mere $399,000. <laughs> so silly money. Uh, Microsoft, Facebook, AWS, Lenovo, and a bunch of other players uh, all have designs either in the works or already in production based on this architecture. Uh, basically, this lets you slot in a whole bunch of GPU to kind of uh, a standard uh, server architecture. They compared it kind of to the ATX standard uh, that was pushed for desktop computers um, letting you very easily slot things in and out. Uh, GPU definitely uh, in, in vogue here. And, and I feel like you're, we're going to be seeing, this is kind of a, a cool, like exciting, you know, NVIDIA is putting out these, you know, two petaflops is an insane number. Um, I, I feel like NVIDIA just, just has to keep this because uh, we're going to be seeing those ASICs, FPGAs, you know, slowly starting to, I think, add on at first. I think they're going to be, in, it's, AI is already a super specialized workload. We're going to be seeing those in like, extremely specific AI workloads and only, you know, over the course of a couple of years kind of build out and maybe into more general use. I, I hesitate to even use that term, but you know, NVIDIA is ahead in this horse race, but they've, they can't let up on the throttle at this point, even though horses don't no, have throttles. They kind of do. Uh, <laughs> no, this, I, I recorded a podcast about a month ago with Gina Rosenthal from VMware and in uh, the folks over at Tech Unplugged and, and uh, GPUs and HPC are huge. Um, VMware, the latest release of uh, vSphere, I believe it's 6.7, um, has a lot of GPU virtualization support built into it. And there's a reason for that. When you look at AI, when you look at ML, when you look at HPC, GPUs are king. CPUs get the box booted. GPUs do the, the heavy lifting. People are not writing AI ML programming for, for regular general purpose CPUs. Um, I mean, $399,000, man, if I could only mine about seven Bitcoins, I could pay for that thing, all right? 
but the reality is is that that's the kind of heavy lifting hardware that you're going to see going forward and to be able to put it into a form factor that allows it to be para virtualized across uh, you know a, a variety of systems or even you know almost like a composable infrastructure thing this is a cloud play plain and simple and cloud providers are going to snatch a few of these things up because they can make bank off of it by selling it to their customers well, and if you're interested in that podcast, uh, it just published on the on-premise IT roundtable podcast feed uh, this two or yesterday. Uh, so you can check that out at gestaltit.com/podcast. But no, you're absolutely right, Tom. And I think this is the other side. This is more of the hyperscale play to what we've been seeing with a couple of companies doing with composable infrastructure. Um, kind of the opposite side of it, though. This is grouping together a huge amount of GPUs, letting them basically. I mean, they're they're able to you know uh, GPU to GPU at like 300 gigabits per second or something insane like that. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of companies, you know, maybe more for more enterprise use cases, do PCI switches on top, you know, on top of your rack, uh, able to kind of, uh, add and swap, uh, GPUs, um, you know, using PCIe. So, uh, very interesting. And, and obviously, like I said, NVIDIA is in the lead here. They want to be setting the standards, getting people used to using their stuff and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, staying relevant in this, uh, highly, highly, highly profitable space. Mm-hmm. All right, Tom, and finally, a story I'm particularly excited about. Uh, The Vermont legislature passed a bill uh, becoming the first state in the U.S. to require data brokers to register with the state. The bill also requires data brokers to secure data and notify victims of breaches, as well as classifying criminal use of data as fraud. The law defines a data broker as any company that collects and sells personal information to third parties collected from consumers without a direct relationship. Now, obviously, this is well short of anything like GDPR. First of all, it's limited to Vermont, uh, America's winter playground, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, But it does seem to be the first U.S. recognition that data belongs to people and that it has some value and, you know, maybe we should protect it. Um, Any hope that this will change the conversation in the U.S.? Uh, I, I know... I feel like GDPR is leaving a bad taste in people's mouths just because they've gotten a lot of seemingly spam emails about terms of service updating. Uh, but this seems like a, an important step. Is Vermont the bellwether here, Tom? Well, I think the most important thing that we need to think about here, Rich, is that I have updated my privacy policy and would like to inform you about it. Oh. No, I'm kidding. Um this this is this is a good step. Um, one of the reasons why GDPR works is because the EU basically is a giant continent-sized hammer that can lower it down on companies and say, no, you're going to behave like this. In the U.S., we don't have that. We have 50 small little rock hammers that have to chip away at the monolith that is Facebook and data brokers. And I think it's funny, you know, GDPR took effect last Friday, and it's amusing to me the number of services that had to shut down because they couldn't be compliant. I just read a story today. Twitter is blocked anyone whose birthday indicates that they were a user of the service before they were 13 because, hey, we don't know if they were you know, able to accept GDPR. Um, I don't think we're ever going to get to GDPR. Um, the difference between the EU and the US is, uh, well, about a metric crap ton of lobbyists that won't allow it to happen. But I'm happy to see that certain states are starting to kind of push this idea that, yeah, it's really important that people need to have their data protected and not just sold to 1,500 other entities. And the next thing you know, you're getting terms of service updates from a company you've never had contact with, have never heard of. And when you do the research, you find out it was the fourth line, fourth in line of a string of acquisitions of a service you signed up for once six years ago. Well, the one good thing is that, yeah, while this technically only affects a small number of Americans, theoretically, 
all it takes is, you know, a few more states to to put something like this into law where it becomes in a company's financial interest. You know, if California passes this law, it effectively becomes national data protection law, uh, because if you have to update it for the however many millions of people in California, you might as well do it across the board. Now, obviously, that doesn't give you any recourse, you know, when the next Yahoo or Verizon data breach comes across and 10 billion email addresses are leaked and, you know, you just got hacked. Um, it, it, you know, it would be nice if your particular state had, uh, uh, you know, some kind of fraud or, you know, had some kind of protections to say, hey, we have to notify you or something like that. But again, if they already have those systems in place for some states, it's, it seems like it would be harder to not implement them for all of their customers. Uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, an interesting first step uh, there. Like you said, there are there are some policy implementations. I mean, I, I don't think we're anywhere close to having any kind of national will uh, to do this across the board. Um, I not even I, I mean, I personally don't think this is a, like a partisan issue to say that data has value and that people that you didn't say to have your data. I mean, I, I, I would think with the whole uh, right. It was Equifax, the big Equifax hack. Right. You mm-hmm. You would think with that enough. There was a bad enough taste in people's mouths to maybe move some legislation like that uh, w- w- in this weird area of business to business data transactions. Right. Uh, sadly, doesn't seem to be the case. But hey, Vermont. Nice step. Thank you. Um, And uh, Vermont, they're the state that makes New Hampshire nervous. So that just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Tom, thank you so much. Where can people find your great work if they are so inclined? As always, check out my Twitter, Networking Nerd. The snark is flowing freely this summer because it's hot and everything's flowing freely. <laughs> um, blog is networkingnerd.net. Yeah, and there's a link there to see the other writing that I do, including all of the articles that I've published on gestaltit.com. Tom, I don't want to think about anything about you that's flowing freely. You can find my work at gestaltit.com as well or on Twitter, uh, Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology, for all uh, observations, whimsical technological or otherwise until next time we meet wednesday 12 30 p.m eastern time we're live on facebook we publish it on youtube and uh, gestaltit.com uh remember everybody have a super sparkly day